This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would come by your Spirit, opening our hearts, our minds, our imaginations to your Word, and that through that Word you would transform us, making us the people that you want us to be, so that you can do your work through us. We pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So 40 days after Easter, somewhere near Bethany, about two miles east of Jerusalem, the disciples watched Jesus ascend into the clouds. Now, at that point, they had no real idea what was going on. Though they watched Jesus ascend, it would take a while for the implications of his ascension to unfold in their lives. But on the Sunday after the ascension, after Jesus gave them a commission, a promise, and a command, I imagine a conversation happened, maybe over lunch or dinner that day, that went a little bit like this. Somebody might have said to Peter, So, Peter, what did Jesus mean when he said that repentance and forgiveness of sins was going to be preached to the nations? And Peter would ponder for a moment and look at the person and say, maybe Philip? I don't know. (laughs) And then somebody else would say, well, what exactly is the promise of the Father, and what are we supposed to be waiting for? And John would say, I don't know. I guess we'll know when it arrives. And then somebody else would say, well, exactly how long are we supposed to wait? Like, till tomorrow? Till Sabbath? A whole other week, month, year? And the disciples then would say in unison, I don't know. These ten days between Ascension and Pentecost are the epitome of already and not yet, right? Theologians talk about how the kingdom has come, and it's already here, Jesus is Lord, but it's not yet here in its fullness. Well, these 10 days are like the epitome of already and not yet. Jesus has ascended, he's been raised, he's seated at the right hand of the Father, and nothing has changed, right? I mean, for 10 days, they're just like, I don't know. I don't know what he meant by the promise of the Father. I don't know how long we're supposed to wait. I don't know what we're supposed to do. We're just hanging out here until something happens. Right? And then, ten days after the ascension, something does happen. Jesus sends the Holy Spirit. He baptizes them in the Spirit. They speak in tongues. 3,000 people are converted, but that's next week's sermon. And one of your articulate clergy will unpack Pentecost for you. 
But today, what the disciples have at the ascension and after the ascension is a commission, a promise, and a command. So I want us to look at those. First, the commission. Jesus' commission to the disciples takes various forms in the Gospels. The one we're most familiar with, we call the Great Commission, where the disciples are called to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that Jesus has commanded. Now, Luke's commission is simpler. It just simply says, Jesus says, you are witnesses. Now, again, the Greek word that's used there isn't a word for observers. Jesus isn't saying, you're observers of this, because that would be like the ultimate stating of the obvious. Right? Well, here you are. You see this. We sure do, Jesus. But what Jesus is saying is, what you're observing, you're going to tell people about. In fact, you are the witnesses who are going to proclaim repentance and forgiveness of sins to the nations. And then just in case they missed it, Jesus repeats it in Acts 1.8, making it more explicit. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you receive power, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Like, here are your marching orders. You're in Jerusalem? Go to Judea. When you're done with Judea, go to Samaria. When you're done with Samaria, go to the ends of the earth. Hard to miss. You are witnesses. Now, I grew up in a Baptist tradition. And as Baptists, we were all about witnessing, right? I mean, we got trained in witnessing. We learned the two questions. We learned the gospel presentation. And then we picked targets. (laughs) And we'd go witness. And in the conversation, we would try to get the conversation to turn so we could ask our two questions. And after we asked the two questions, we would dump the gospel on people. And then we'd come back to church when we were done, and we'd share our reports and see how many people had come to faith. Now, interestingly, Jesus doesn't say to the disciples, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you'll go around witnessing. What he says is, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you'll receive power and you will be my witnesses. Now, it seems like it's a subtle distinction, but it's the distinction between going and doing something as opposed to being the kind of person who shares what we have discovered and learned like my grandchildren do. Witnessing isn't something we do to pad our resume so that at the judgment seat before Jesus, we can hand him all of the cool things we did for him so that he'll let us into heaven. Right? In case you don't know, you can't do enough cool things. 
Jesus is not going to be impressed with your resume. The reason is the standard of judgment is Jesus, is glory. We have fallen short of the glory of God. So Jesus doesn't grade on a curve, so it's not like if you get a 67, you're in, right? Even though there might be a lot of people cooler than you are in heaven. Jesus' curve is a line, and the line is 100% will all fall short. But Jesus says he's going to do things in our lives that we will not only observe, but share. We will be witnesses. That's the commission that he gives us. But he also gives us a promise. The great news of our being his witnesses comes with this promise, the Father's promise, the promise of the Holy Spirit. In both the gospel and in Acts, the commission is connected to the promise of the Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will receive power and you'll be my witnesses. This is how it's going to go. The Spirit is going to work in your life in such a way that you can't help but have something to tell to the people that are in your life. If there's nothing going on in your life that has anything other than a human explanation, cry out to God. Ask Him. Because the power of the Spirit will do things that give us something to share. And then he gives a command. The promise is crucial, and so he says to the disciples, stay in Jerusalem until you receive this power. Stay in Jerusalem until I send the promise of the Father. Do not go out in your own power in your own wisdom to try to accomplish my purposes. Because it's only, 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 only in the power of the Spirit that we can do this. Now, we are Americans, or at least most of us are Americans. Our besetting sin as Americans is that we doff our hat to God and say, cool idea, we got it. Right? You want the nations to hear? Awesome. Okay. Let's call a committee together, make a strategic plan, set goals, smart goals. Who's going to do it? When is it going to get done? How are we going to do this? And off we go to accomplish the purposes of God without the power of God. I will tell you, it's not that planning is wrong or inappropriate, but you can come up with the best plan, and if the Spirit isn't in it, there's no power. And so he says... Stay in Jerusalem. Now, it's intriguing to me. God must be partly Pentecostal. Right? Because if he was an Anglican, 
Jesus would have sent the Holy Spirit at night like the tooth fairy. And the apostles would have woken up the next morning with their hearts strangely warmed. And then this imperceptible, incremental work of God would have started in their hearts. And 10 or 12 generations later, (laughs) right? Pentecost is not our celebration. Hasn't been. Should be. Because when the promise of the Father comes, the promise of the Father comes in a pretty noticeable way. In fact, all of the sermons, almost all of the sermons, the the things that we call sermons in the book of Acts, are not sermons at all. In fact, Acts 13 is probably the only real sermon we have. All the rest of the sermons, Peter's sermon in Acts 2, is not a sermon, it's an explanation. Right? Peter didn't stand up to preach a sermon. People came to Peter and said, what in the world is going on? And Peter said, well, let me explain what God is doing. If Peter had shown up in the temple on the day of Pentecost with no power and had preached a sermon, what would have happened? I don't know. But I do know that when the power of God, bang, shows up, and Peter explains what God is doing, 3,000 people gave their life to Jesus. And so he says, stay in Jerusalem until you are clothed with power from on high. Now, is there in Jerusalem? I don't know what their conversation was, but I wonder if one of them remembered what Jesus taught. Luke recorded it. Jesus said to the disciples, and I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Now there's a a whole movement globally that takes those verses as their theme verses and spends a lot of time asking the Father for stuff. Unfortunately, those verses are connected to the verses that follow. And Jesus says... What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Jesus says, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking persistently so that the Father will send the Spirit. That needs to be our prayer this morning. 
We need to join the disciples in the upper room between Ascension and Pentecost, and we need to be crying out that God would send his spirit among us, that he would work in such a way that we find ourselves having to explain to our neighbors what they're seeing happen. We don't need to try to convince our neighbors that their worldview is wrong. We need to beg that God would move among us with such power that our neighbors see and we then are witnesses. Bringing the explanation. Now, all of this is especially apropos for the confirmands this morning. As you confirmands come forward, you'll be declaring yourselves to be witnesses. In fact, your coming forward itself is a moment of witness. You're going to be declaring that God has worked in your life and brought you to a place where you are ready to make a lifetime commitment that will drastically change everything in your future. And you're coming to be anointed by the Spirit. You'll kneel and I'll lay my hands upon you, representing the apostles, and I will pray that the Holy Spirit will move in your hearts and minds and imaginations so that you will be witnesses. In a parallel set of renunciations and promises, you're going to settle three things in your life. You're going to settle the question of lordship. You will say that you renounce Satan and all the forces of evil that rebel against God, and that you turn and accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You're acknowledging the way Scripture does that there are really only two paths. There are the path that Satan's in charge of, and there's the path that Jesus is in charge of. And from this day forward, you are committing yourself to the Jesus path, that you will follow him, you will listen to him, you will obey him. He will speak into your life guidance about every decision that you make. And so you're going to settle the question of lordship. But you're also going to settle the question of truth and where you find it. On the path that Satan is in charge of, truth comes through the messages of the world, the empty promises and deadly deceits. On the Jesus path, truth is to be found in the Holy Scriptures. And you're going to say that that's going to be your guide. Now, if you don't believe the world has empty promises and deadly deceits, um, A, you're not paying attention. Um, and, but listen, here's a great example. When I watch TV, I like to watch sports, which means I watch a lot of beer commercials. And I know from those commercials the secret of making you amazing. You can be 31 years old, with body fat of about 2%, incredibly handsome or beautiful, connected to a whole bunch of other 
incredibly handsome and beautiful people about your age, all of whom show up at the same bar. And when you show up, they're all there. They know you, and they're glad that you're there. Drink Bud Light. (laughs) Right? I mean, have you ever seen a Bud Light commercial where, like, a 64-year-old pudgy guy is sitting in his lazy boy watching the Steelers eating Doritos (laughs) by himself? I'm guessing that some high percentage of Bud Light is actually consumed that way. (laughs) They are not going to show you that commercial. It's an empty promise. If I filled my trunk with Bud Light and drank only Bud Light for like the next month of my life, I would not end up being six inches taller and 20 pounds lighter and 30 years younger, and better looking. It's an empty promise. But the messages of the world are also filled with these deadly deceits. For example, the covers of glossy magazines in the grocery store. Speak loudly to the women of our gener- to the women of our culture, saying, "This is what beauty is." Now listen, only 02 percent of women can look like that after they're airbrushed. Right? These are not normal women. And yet our culture says, "This is what beauty is." It's a deadly deceit. Our culture says that more is better, that power gives you the right to abuse the people under you. Our culture says all kinds of crazy things, empty promises, deadly deceits, standing in contradiction to the scriptures. So you'll settle the question of lordship, you'll settle the question of where you'll find truth, and you'll settle the question of focus. The path that Satan's in charge of is the path of self-expression. The path that Jesus is in charge of is the path of self-denial and obedience. Part of the message of our world is to call you into the expression of whatever is in your heart. But you're going to renounce your heart. You're going to say that anything that's in your heart that stands against what Jesus wants you to do, you're setting aside. Part of the deadly deceits of our world is this call to believe that whatever we want, whatever is in our hearts and minds and imaginations is good. I remember reading an article, this is a long time ago, written by a a priest 
who was explaining why divorcing his wife and marrying his secretary was the right thing to do, having been led by the Spirit, his heart led him to do it. It's a lie. There are a lot of things that your heart will want to do that are not good or right or true or beautiful. Now, we all know that parts of our heart are broken, right? And if you put before me a bowl of kale and a Krispy Kreme donut (laughs) and say to me, whatever your heart wants to do is good for you, I'm not choosing the kale. Many of our longings, many of the things that are deep inside of us are broken and wounded and twisted. And you're going to stand and say that anything that draws you from the love of God, you're renouncing. And instead, you're choosing obedience. It's important for you to know, confirmands, that your declaration of faith, you're receiving a fresh anointing of the Spirit, your renunciations and your promises set you on a path. A path that will be a crazy mix of joy and grief, of pleasure and pain, of peace and anxiety, of faith and doubt, of victory and failure. Your prayer life will parallel that of the psalmists with praise and lament and confession. It won't be easy. But in all of that, you will be Christ's witnesses. And you won't travel alone. Because after you make your promises, I'm going to ask the congregation if they will do all in their power to support you in your life in Christ. And they will all gladly and enthusiastically say, we will. And when you say that, you're saying that on behalf of the whole church. And at every confirmation, when a congregation says that, they're saying that on your behalf, which means that you have that commitment to do all in your power to support these persons in their life in Christ. You have that commitment to every other person who's sitting in here. Every time one of our students walks away from Jesus in college, it's a failure of the church, capital C. We have not done all in our power. It's not the parents' fault. It's our fault. My kids grew up knowing Jesus, not because Sherry and I were awesome parents, although she was. (laughs) That was pretty mediocre. But they grew up knowing Jesus because there were people at just the right moment in the church that spoke into their lives, that walked with them as they explored and unpacked and questioned and doubted. And we will make that commitment to these confirmands 
and we will remind ourselves we've made that commitment to all of us. Now, I'll come back to the only hope we have. That if we wait in Jerusalem, that Jesus will send the promise of the Father. And in the power of the Spirit, we will be able to be the people he calls us to be. And we will be his witnesses. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we acknowledge that left to ourselves, there is no hope for anything except failure. And so, Lord, we take you at your word. And you said that if we would ask, if we would seek, if we would knock, that your Father would hear our prayers and he would send his Spirit. So, Lord, we do, we ask, we seek, we knock. We beg and pray and plead that you would release your spirit in our hearts, our minds, our souls, our wills, our imaginations, and that you would stretch out your hand and do signs and wonders. And so we give ourselves to you, Jesus. Lord of all, seated at the right hand of the Father, as we pray in your holy name, amen.